Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. Genesis 9 verses 18 through 29. Last time we looked at the covenant of preservation that God made with Noah, with his family, with the animals, indeed with every single creature on the earth. And not just for that generation. God made that covenant with us. That covenant is still true for us. The covenant of preservation, the Noahic covenant, God's pledge and promise to never again destroy the world with a flood. And every time we see the rainbow, that's God's sign. He put it there. We get to see it a lot this month. And that rainbow is a sign that God will never again destroy the world with a flood for the sin of man, much of the sins that are celebrated today by the rainbow. God promises we will never again give us what we deserve, though we continue to deserve it. And I wanted to show you that last week that that covenant that God declared and promised and swore and bound himself to with man, with the animals, with all the earth, was not itself the relationship It did not create a relationship. How absurd is that idea? For 1,600 years, God had been relating to man as his image bearer. God had given to him the gospel of the seed of the woman. God had taught him how to worship. God had a relationship with man and with the animals. The covenant is not the relationship. That is a terrible error made today by the Federal Vision Movement and others. The covenant is the stipulations It is the agreement. It is the pledge. It is the vow. It is the promise. It's what you do when you stand before God and your spouse-to-be and you make a promise to one another. That doesn't create a relationship. You already have a relationship. It binds you to certain duties and rights and privileges. And you give signs a lot of times, right? The ring, while God's sign is the bow. It's actually his bow of war that he says, I'm hanging up. I'm not going to strike the earth with my arrows anymore. Not until Judgment Day. That's what we saw last week. That gracious promise of God that he gave in a covenant. A covenant to preserve this world, though it does not deserve it. Though, as Calvin said, we continue to deserve the flood every day because of our sins. Yet God said, I won't do it. I will be gracious. I will be merciful until my purposes in this world are complete. Well, in our text this morning, we pick it up sometime after the flood. We don't know how long, but it has to be a several years because in the very first verse, Ham is said to be the father of Canaan. And from chapter 10, we learn that Canaan is Ham's fourth and youngest son. So it's got to be at least four or five years after the flood. And what we see in our text is Noah. The man called righteous, the man who was said to be perfect in his generations, the man who walked with God, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, the only one whom God said, I have found you to be righteous before me. Noah sins. He sins grossly and egregiously against the Lord. This isn't the pre flood wicked world, this isn't the unbeliever. This isn't even the nominal Christian. This is the patriarch. This is the first type of Savior and Christ who really did physically save the world. 
By the work that he did in building the ark and by the faith that he had, and yes, God imputed the righteousness of Christ to Noah. That's the only way he was righteous. And yet this godly man sins. How do we respond to sin in the church? How do we treat the sins of one another as we believe in Christ and yet we sin? That's what we see in our text. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for this powerful consolation that it ought to be. That you are the God who saves a people who are yet sinners. And you show us how we are to love you and one another in the church. Make this word powerful in our hearts. Cause us to be a church of love for you and love for one another. A church that does not wink at sin, but a church that rightly exalts you and seeks the sanctification of one another in love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. This is God's holy word. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be a servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the sins of the flesh. I want you to notice the sins of the flesh. We see Noah is now a farmer after having been a carpenter for a long time and building that boat. Probably returned to what he had done before. He plants a vineyard. From vineyards come grapes. From grapes comes wine. And Noah gets drunk. The Hebrew word in verse 21 actually means inebriation, intoxication. It means drunkenness. I know the word drunk could just mean I have drunk some water or something like that in English. But the word drunk in Hebrew here means he was drunk. He was intoxicated. To the point, actually, of passing out. Sometimes I'm asked the question, usually uh, by younger people, well, why is it that the Bible allows alcohol but not drugs? What's wrong with using drugs Uh, If alcohol is allowed, maybe you've heard that question. Maybe you've been puzzled by it. Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't forbid something because it's food or drink. What the Bible forbids is drunkenness. It forbids intoxication. It forbids inebriation. That state of being uh, impaired physically and mentally because of an abundance of a certain drug in your body. One of the definitions of drunkenness in the dictionary is to stupefy. That's exactly what it does. 
And you see, the, the thing with illegal drugs is, and I'm not talking, please don't come up to me after the service. I'm not talking about medical use of drugs, right? Medication. I'm not talking about when you have medication and you have a subscription, or not a subscription, a prescription <laughs> for, you shouldn't have a subscription to anything. Right? But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about using drugs to get high. Using drugs to get intoxicated. You see, the thing is, with drugs, that's what they're for. Nobody takes a a social shot of heroin. Right? You don't have that at a party. You know, you don't take a, a snort of cocaine to have a nice recreational time with your neighbors at dinner or something. Drugs are for the very purpose of getting high. That's what they're made for. If your drug doesn't get you high, you've got a bad batch. That's why drugs are wrong. All drugs, illegal drugs, marijuana, heroin, cocaine, whatever it is, are always wrong because for the, they're for the purpose of getting high. They're for the purpose of sinning in the state of inebriation and intoxication and drunkenness. And that's not true with alcohol, with the moderate use of alcohol. That's not true. In fact, we know from many studies that alcohol moderately used, a glass or two of wine a day, it's usually uh, phrased that way, actually is good for your body, is good with the antioxidants. Actually, uh, there's studies now that say that it can reduce the chances of dementia and Alzheimer's and all other things, this moderate use, right? That's not true with drugs. There's just no such thing as a moderate use of cocaine or heroin or anything else. You get high immediately. That's why it's a sin. So dispensing with that, I do want to notice that drunkenness with alcohol is a great sin. All right? We understand from the Bible that a moderate use of alcohol is allowed. And sometimes because of that, Christians in Reformed circles can go way too far against, you know, what we perceive was the fundamentalist movement and many of the extra rules that were added. Women couldn't wear makeup. You're not supposed to go to movies, all sorts of things, and you don't drink and you don't play cards and all that stuff. And we know that's not true. And so sometimes we overreact, right, to the point where we begin to actually sin in these things again. And we don't want to do that. I want to notice that the sin of drunkenness is never permitted in the Bible. Never. It is never condoned. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 does not allow, much less command, drunkenness for people who are mourning. Drunkenness is always a sin. Always a sin. I can't think of a better passage to show just how much of a vile sin drunkenness is than Proverbs 23. And I can tell you this, and many of you know my testimony. I did not come to the Lord until I was 20 and had lived a life of, you know, the partying and going out and getting drunk and carousing and all of that stuff. Now, I can identify with this passage. Not only can I identify with it personally, but I can see so many people that I know throughout this text that I'm about to read you. Relatives who did these very things. This is so realistic. If you've ever struggled with the sin of drunkenness or have known people who have, this passage is just unbelievable. Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? I love that one. How did this happen to me? Oh, I don't know. I was drunk last night. I got all bruised up now. I have contentions. I'm I'm feuding now with this group of guys because of what happened last night. I don't even remember. Right? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. 
Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Listen to this. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Everybody knows someone gets drunk and they say all kind of crazy things. And you see double and triple. Yes, you will be like the one who lies down in the midst of the sea. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast. I've literally known this. I've known people. I've had cousins who passed out on the railroad tracks. Somebody found them. Thank God. Another cousin who passed out in the middle of the road, in the middle of the night, this country McAdam Road, Pinchot Road. Somebody come up over the hill, saw him, jammed on the brakes, got him off the road. Here it's, you'll fall asleep in the midst of the sea, on the top of the mast. You have no regard for danger. Your senses and reason are gone. They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. And then this, when shall I awake that I may seek another drink? That's really the vileness of drunkenness. After going through that, after humiliating yourself, after shaming yourself, the first thing you want to do in the morning is start it all over again. You know, when I was living that life, I actually thought it was a great life, and I look back on it now. And it was shameful and disgusting. And again, I remember seeing people, I'd be walking through the Penn State campus, oh boy, you know, hope that person doesn't see me because of what happened. And you have these people you can't talk to now, and this person you're afraid of because you destroyed something of theirs the night before. And again, you have wounds, and you don't know how you got them, and all sorts of ridiculous things, not to mention getting in trouble with the law, as we did as young people. The New Testament also speaks against this sin of drunkenness. Romans chapter 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Ephesians 5.18, listen to this. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation... Pastor Appleton read this text earlier. Dissipation, dissolution, right? Looseness, no temperance. Dissipation, lack of restraint, right? This is what happens when you get drunk. You no longer have your your wherewithal to, to hinder yourself from doing things you know you shouldn't. Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You see the contrast? You cannot be a Christian and be walking in the gifts and graces of the Spirit if you're drunk with wine. Because it's one or the other. You can't be filled with the Spirit if you're drunk with wine. It's just not possible. And we need to remember this again in Reformed circles. That drunkenness is a great sin. It would be better to be someone who wrongly thinks that the Bible commands teetotalism, that the Bible forbids all alcohol, and live a sober life with that wrong doctrine. It would be better to, to do that than to understand rightly that the Bible allows alcohol, but to live in drunkenness. Be far better to be the one who misunderstands Scripture and yet remains sober than the one who lives in sin but understands Scripture properly. This is something we need to remember. 1 Peter, again, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. Boy, this sounds like today, doesn't it? And abominable idolatries. Galatians 5.19 lists all the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, lewdness, and uncleanness, idolatry, sorcery, etc., etc. Verse 21, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand. Listen to this. Just as I told you in time past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
We rightly rebuke the sin of homosexuality today with 1 Corinthians 6. And we need to do that especially in this month. 1 Corinthians 6 which says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, it goes on, nor covetous, listen to this, nor drunkards. Nor revilers, nor adult, uh, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. Notice from this text. Unrepentant homosexuals and unrepentant drunkards will have the same thing in common. They'll together be sitting next to each other outside the kingdom of heaven. That's what the text says. You may have been a drunkard, but you cannot be a drunkard and be a Christian. And we need to keep that in mind. What did our Reformed fathers say about this sin? Surely our Reformed fathers, living at the height of the Middle Ages when everybody got drunk, would have really downplayed this sin as something not that important, right? John Calvin, quote, We are to learn from the drunkenness of Noah what a filthy and detestable crime drunkenness is. Therefore, with what care Ought we to cultivate sobriety? The Geneva Bible calls it a horrible thing. Matthew Henry says this, It disgraces men. Adam had the sense to seek a covering when he sinned. Noah, because of the great evil of the sin of drunkenness, the great evil of the sin of drunkenness is devoid of sense and reason. He has made himself incapable of covering his shame. At least Adam knew to run and cover. Noah can't do that. He's passed out in his tent. He doesn't even know that he's alive. He is completely gone. He is drunk. John Calvin says that that drunkenness is a sin for this reason. It defaces the image of God in every man. When you get drunk, you lose the the ability of your senses, you lose your reason, and you become, Calvin says, like one of the brute beasts. You become like an animal, like Noah, who just falls down in his tent and is naked and doesn't even know it or have the wherewithal to cover himself or to close his tent. Beloved, this is the sin of drunkenness. It is one of the overindulgences in the good creatures of God. It is a gross sin. And finally, it does this. Like all sins of the flesh, it takes away the heart of man for God. I want to emphasize that. Where do I see that? Hosea 4.11. Sexual immorality. Listen to this. Another gross perversion of the flesh, right? A good thing, sex, but to abuse it. A good thing, wine, but to abuse it. Sexual immorality and wine and new wine. Listen. Take away the heart. If you indulge in these kinds of sins of the flesh, your heart becomes hard to the things of God. You no longer find yourself sensitive to the movements of the Spirit because you're overindulging in the flesh, whether it's sexual immorality or whether it's drunkenness. If you find yourself becoming cold to the things of God, ask yourself the question, have I been walking in the sin of sexual immorality? Have I been walking in the sin of drunkenness? Because it takes away the heart. Hosea 4.11. Secondly, I want you to notice the sins of the Spirit. I want you to notice the sins of the Spirit. Again, 
While the sins of the flesh are manifest, while they're gross, while they're shameful, while they're obvious, there's Noah lying down unconscious, naked in his tent, maybe in his own vomit, as often happens when you engage in that sin. It's gross to see, right? You see it. You see the sins of the flesh. They're evident. As gross as they are, the sins of the Spirit are worse. The sins of the Spirit are worse. There's a sense in which many of those who are caught up in the sins of the flesh are caught up due to the weakness of a desire for godliness and the great pleasures of the sins of the flesh overcome them. That's not true with the sins of the Spirit. With the sins of the Spirit, it is an actual hardness of the heart. It is a delight in the exaltation of self that causes one to engage in the sins of the Spirit. And that's... Beloved, what we see in Ham. That's what we see in Ham, verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. And he told, he declared, he reported to his brothers, his two brothers, who were outside. There's a real sense in which Ham told the whole world the sins of his father, of his own father, beloved. You know, it's shameful at this point for me to really discuss some of the recent scholarly interpretations of this verse, and I'm not going to do that. You can look it up. Maybe some of you are aware of it. It is absolutely foreign to the text, has nothing to do with the text. In essence, it's basically that Ham did some perverted act to his father or to his father's mother. And this is how they reason. That's not what the text says. Verse 23 absolutely proves that wrong. And in fact, they admit verse 23 makes their interpretation nonsense. So this is what they do with verse 23. They say, well, that was added by a redactor later who didn't understand the subtlety of the sin. That's awesome. Make up a sin, stick it in the text, and throw the text away because it refutes your made-up sin. But we're not going to do that right now. We're just going to look at the sin of Ham. Ham dishonors his father. You say, what was the sin of Ham? He took delight in seeing his father put to shame. He made it worse. He wanted to proclaim his father's shame and disgrace to others. He delighted in it. He delighted in one whom he was bound to more than anyone else in the world. Not just his father, but his savior. Noah literally saved the world. The world should have honored Noah with all sorts of exaltations and trophies and honors, the world should have been singing Noah's praises till the day he died. If you could think of the most celebrated man that's ever lived, how could it not be Noah? And the one thing, the one time Noah sins, Ham sees it. The only time that we see it in Scripture, I know he would have sinned other times, but the one time where it's manifest and gross and shameful and Ham sees it, he runs out and spreads it out for everybody to know. This is who Noah is, the great savior, the great man of faith. He's lying in his own vomit, drunk, in the tent. Brothers, go see. It's hilarious. Let's dishonor our father together. Let's consider the one who gave us birth in a shameful light. Some say, well, how did Ham know it was wrong? There were no Ten Commandments yet. The Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, hasn't been given yet. John Calvin says, nature itself teaches us to honor our parents. Everyone has 
in their human nature, a basic understanding of right and wrong. We have a conscience. Even if it's corrupted by sin, you can't completely silence it. Everyone knows they are to treat their parents with honor, as Calvin says, from nature itself, the law of nature, from being who you are. Calvin goes on, piety toward parents is the mother of all virtues. Therefore, here's what Calvin says, Ham must have been of a wicked, perverse, and crooked disposition. To seek to shame the one that he's on a human level to, to honor more than anyone else, his parents. And then on a salvation level, this is the type of Christ, an actual savior, the first savior of the world. And Ham can't wait to run out and talk to his brothers about how disgraceful his father is right at that moment. And I can't help but think of some of the same thing that's going on in the, in the worldly church today, what I often call the worldly church, the progressive church, right? Where they love to dig up some sin that maybe Luther committed or Calvin, and they want to celebrate it and spread it out on social media. I mentioned to you the one school that said, you know, Martin Luther was a racist, put posters up. Now, the school didn't do it. It was groups in the school. You know, they have to have their groups. The school administrators should have disciplined that group and immediately tore down the posters. But, you know, they want to create a conversation, right? wonder if we put up posters that said, Mary Magdalene was a whore. On, maybe, maybe we should do that. Create the conversation, right? I mean, the Bible talks about Jesus delivering prostitutes. Or Peter was a denier. Or Paul was a persecutor. David was an adulterer. Let's remember the great saints for their sins. Is that what God tells us to do? To remember those? God says of David, he was a man after my own heart. Yeah, he committed a great sin. But he was a great saint. And the Bible teaches us to do exactly the opposite with this kind of thing. It teaches us to cover sins. To cover them. The Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 144, what are the duties required in the ninth commandment? The duties required in the ninth commandment are, and I'm going to skip way down, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, listen, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, and here it is, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. Covering their infirmities. We should be covering our infirmities, not broadcasting them, not celebrating them, not causing someone's whole life to be boiled down to something that they did in a moment of weakness. And all of us have. That is not loving our neighbors as ourselves. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Here it is. Bear one another's burdens. We should be bearing them. Not throwing them at people. Bear one another's burdens. So fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What did Jesus say if your brother sins against you? Go and celebrate it out on, go and broadcast it on social media, right? If your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. We want to minimize sin. We want to minimize the message and damage of sin. Go and tell him between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Even then, if he doesn't, what? Just take two or three others. 
We want to continue to try to minimize the wickedness that we all do and bear it as far as we can. And of course, my great verse to refer to in this text is 1 Peter 4, 8. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. Here it is. For love will cover a multitude of sins. The more you love someone, the more you will try to cover their faults. Try to minimize their shame. Now, I'm not talking about covering scandal. I'm not talking about, you know, the scandal that was in the Roman church with the priests and the, and the boys. And I'm not talking about the scandal that was in the Protestant church with those famous ministers and the prostitutes. Those things, when a man sins in some public way or hurts someone else, he needs to be brought to justice. All right, let's recognize that. There needs to be consequences. I'm talking about private sins between a person and God. We should try to cover those. Or if someone sins against you, right? That's the thing. If someone sins against you as far as you can to cover it, right? When you do that, if it was your own child or if it was your parent or if it was your spouse, you try to cover that because you love that person. It's only when we want to ruin somebody that we uncover it. And that's exactly what Ham did. He wanted to ruin and disgrace his father. He hated his father. He rejoiced in his shame and he wanted to spread it as far as he could. And so thirdly, I want you to notice the Christian thing to do. I want you to notice the Christian thing to do. Verse 23, again, proves that Ham did not do anything to his father, but just saw his shame. Because how do Shem and Japheth take the news that Ham has spread to them? It says, verse 23, Shem and Japheth, now look at this. They took a garment, they laid it on both of their shoulders. So Shem's here, Japheth's here, and between them they put this garment. And it says this, look, they went backward and they covered the nakedness of their father. And it even says their faces were turned away. So that what? So that they did not see their father's nakedness, which is the very thing that Ham did. It's seeing him, humiliated. And Shem and Japheth were so wanting to honor their father, they would not allow that image to enter into their eyes. They would not allow them to ever see their father that way, though he was drunk and unconscious in the tent. They would not allow that image to enter their brains. They turned their heads away. They covered their father with the blanket. They restored their father's honor. They covered his shame. Love does not delight in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. And in the very next text, and it bears all things. Japheth and Shem bore this sin of their fathers. And they put it to rest. And they put it to bed. And they got rid of it. They honored their father. It's the very thing that Adam and Eve did. Or God did for Adam and Eve. When they're standing before God, naked, with these fig leaves trying to cover themselves, and God comes and confronts them, what's the first thing he does after he finishes speaking to them and giving them the gospel, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, after giving them something to believe in, it says he made coverings. He covered their shame. God covered their shame. And just like that, Shem and Japheth cover the shame of their father. You know, it's, it's a sad thing. There is a lengthy tradition of excusing the sins of Christians. I know that. And you'll see that in the commentaries, especially the church fathers, the early fathers. Even all the way up, Aquinas does this. He'll excuse why 
Moses really didn't sin or why Noah here really didn't sin. By the way, the argument why Noah didn't sin is that no one had ever made wine before and so that he didn't know that it was going to make him drunk and so it was an accident. Okay, the, reformed, the reformers broke with that nonsense, right? That fermentation wasn't possible before the flood somehow. And so Noah didn't know because why? Saints can't commit mortal sins and so Noah's sin had to be an accidental sin which is a venial sin. And they do that with David, and they do that with Abraham, they do that with Peter. All the different ways to explain away the sins of this text. And what they do, beloved, when they do that, is they lose the comfort that this text should bring to us as Christians. Again, the Reformers broke with that tradition, and they took the Word of God for what it is. Martin Luther says this about this text, that the, quote, the Holy Spirit judged it necessary For the church, listen to this, to see this great sin of this great saint. Boy, if that isn't classic Luther. To see this great sin. You don't minimize sin of this, yes, great saint. You know why? Because great saints sin. Great saints commit great sin. Sins, And when we deny that, when we water that down, when we make excuses for it, we lose the consolation that we could have as Christians. And we want to exalt and put on a pedestal somehow and somehow like works righteous. You know, no, actually was really better than us. He was a sinner saved by grace. That's what he was. That's what, under, that's what Luther understood. The Holy Spirit judged it necessary. For the church is to see this great sin of this great saint. Listen, and those who excuse the patriarch. Oh, Luther had read these commentaries. Reject the consolation that's given. When you excuse him, oh, he didn't really commit drunkenness. To every sinner, every Christian who does get drunk, you've just taken away the comfort that they could have. That they can repent too because Noah repented and was forgiven. And even Noah committed this sin. That's the consolation. Matthew Henry finds three great lessons in the sin of Noah's drunkenness. That great saints still sin. That was Luther's point. Secondly, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be puffed up with pride. Don't think somehow you're above this sin. If it were not for the Holy Spirit guarding you, you and I would fall for any temptation that would come down the pike. You may never have felt the desire for drunkenness. You may be repulsed by alcohol. And yet if the Holy Spirit did not keep you, you would be a drunk tomorrow. And so would I. Or any other sin. Homosexuality. You name it. Whatever you're repulsed by. If the Holy Spirit didn't keep you, you would fall. Satan would have you. He'd sift you like wheat. Let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Matthew Henry said the second lesson and the third lesson he says is to guard our hearts. Galatians 6. There are good things in this world that we are allowed to use. Sex is a great gift from God in marriage. Outside of marriage, it's a, it's a monstrous sin. And so is wine. It's a, it's a gift from God, a, a, a blessing to Israel. When Israel is blessed, God would say that the, the, the vineyards would flow with new wine, right? A blessing. They have abundance again. They can relax and enjoy themselves. But when that blessing is abused, the good gifts of God can be abused. And we need to guard our hearts against that. And that's what Noah did not do. And so, fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the cursing and the blessing. I want you to notice the cursing of the blessing. Well, what's going on at the end of this text? I know that's what you all want to know. I tried to 
minimized my time, it seems, to get there. Verse 24, Noah woke from his wine. He knew what his younger son did to him. Obviously, somebody told him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brother. Now, let's recognize something here. Noah is not a bitter man lashing out in vengeance against his son who did something bad to him. That's not what's going on here. Um, Noah is the father of Ham. Noah is a believer. He's also a type of Christ to come. There's a sense in which the whole church was bound up in Noah as it was in Adam before. And even in Eve, outside of Adam, every person that's ever come into this world came through Eve other than Adam. So the church was bound up as it were in him. And Noah is not exercising a wish. He's not praying a prayer. Noah is a prophet. And here he is speaking as God's spokesman. He is declaring the prophetic future. All right? And God used the occasion of his own sin to do this. God has forgiven him. Noah repents. We never read of Noah getting drunk again. But the big question is, okay... Why Canaan and not Ham? Right? Why does he curse Canaan when Ham is the one who saw him? Doesn't the Bible say, and it does, and I'll read you the verses, Deuteronomy 24, 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the sin. The righteousness of the righteous shall be on himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be on himself. This is basic justice, and God always operates this way. Always. Let's notice a couple of things. First of all, God is free to bring judgment to any sinner at any time for any reason. Right? We're all sinners. So God could have brought this judgment on Canaan if Noah had never got drunk. Because Canaan is a sinner. Canaan deserves to go to hell, as does Noah, as does the rest of us. So if God causes something or God permits something to happen in this world that is unjust to a person, that person can't say, God, you wronged me. Because God should throw us in hell. That's righting us. If you really want what God, you really want justice from God then we would all be in hell right now. That's what we deserve. And that's what justice is, getting what you deserve. And so there's nothing wrong with God bringing some judgment on Canaan. For whatever reason, Canaan deserves worse. Let's recognize that. So we can say that right away. Secondly, we do see the curse, the original curse, falls on the serpent. Then it falls on the ground for man's sake. Then it falls on Cain when he sins. Now it falls on Canaan. Uh, on the occasion of the sin of Ham. Let's notice that Ham is not cursed. I think part of the reason for that is Ham's already been blessed. Look at the first verse of our chapter. God blessed Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember we looked at this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God blessed Ham in the multiplying and the filling of the earth along with Japheth and along with Shem. And it's only Canaan of Ham's descendants that is cursed. No one else. Now the way I understand this text, and I think I can show this to you, is that what God is saying, again, this is a prophetic prediction of the future. That it is in Canaan that this sin of his father would come to the fullness. And so that it was in Canaan that God would punish him. 
Because no one is ever punished for sins that are not their own. God never does that. And therefore, God, in a prophetic pronouncement from Noah, is saying that someday in Canaan's descendants, not even in Canaan personally, but in Canaan's descendants, we actually know it would be 800 years from now. Because 800 years from this text, God sends Israel into the land, and what does he tell them to do? Wipe out the Canaanites. Why? Because they were so wicked. God even says that. Don't think I'm bringing you into the land because of your great righteousness, but because of these nations' great wickedness. And when God first gives the promise to Abraham 400 years after this text that he will give them the land, he says, you've got to wait 400 years, though, because the iniquity of the Amorite, a descendant of Canaan, is not yet complete. God will not bring any punishment on the Canaanites until they've sinned enough to deserve it. And that's all this text is saying. That when the Canaanites are wicked enough, God will judge them for this. Because it was in Canaan that God, again, in a prophetic pronouncement, says he's the one in whom this sin will be most uh, uh, seen and, and, and matured. And in fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 15, it says, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, Heth, and then verse 16, the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite. And then in in Genesis 15, when God gives Abraham the land, he gives him the land of the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. All descendants of Canaan. Because these are the ones who would become so wicked in that sin that God would bring that judgment in his time. What happens if you're a descendant of Canaan? What happens if you could find out somehow, you know, 23andMe or something, they figure out the DNA of the Canaanites. Oh, I got some Canaanite blood in me. I must be cursed, right? No. It's not the way God's curses work. Rahab was a Canaanite. Living in the city of Jericho, which was twice cursed. The whole land was cursed, but then especially Jericho was cursed. Everyone was to be wiped out in Jericho. But what happened? Rahab heard of Jehovah, believed in him, sided with Israel, her whole family. Not just her. Her whole family becomes Israelites, become Jews. We don't even see them after that because they get to become full Jews like everyone else. They become covenant people because they repented and they believed. And that's what you do. Everyone is always responsible under the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. And of of this pronouncement. If you're a Canaanite, you repent and believe and you'll be blessed. And that's true of the blessing on Shem and Japheth. That's not automatic either. Oh, I'm a descendant of Shem. God's my God. I'm going to go out and kill and murder and whatever. Because, you know, it says I'm blessed. Woohoo! You've got to repent. You've got to believe the Shem are the Shemites, the Semites. If someone is anti-Semitic, they're anti-Jewish. Shem is the father of the Jews. There were many Jews who were not true Jews. Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, was a Jew. Esau, whom I hated, God says, full-blooded Jew. The twin of Jacob. Ishmael, Jew. Judas, Caiaphas, Annas, Jew. Did God's blessing come upon them? Because God swore to bless Shem. They had to repent. And they had to believe to receive that blessing. And so also the Japhethites. Who are the Japhethites? That's all of you. Most of you anyway, by the looks of you. Japheth's descendants went north. Seven sons and seven grandsons. To Europe. To Asia. They were the Europeans. 
They were the Slavic peoples, the Russians. They were most of us because America was settled by Europeans. And what God is predicting here in this text is that the Japhethites will someday be saved and be part of the Jewish community. And almost every one of the church fathers and the reformers say that happened when the gospel went out. That when the go- and that promise was another 2,500 years after this text. That the Japhethites would finally come and live in the tents of Shem. And that didn't happen for 2,500 years. The Japhethites were up in you know, Britain and the Celts worshipping gods and goddesses of the stones. The Germanic tribes were wiping each other out. The Vikings were bowing down to statues and living like animals. All sorts of Japhethites for a thousand, for two thousand plus years did not come in. The Roman Empire. But that blessing had its fruition when God, in his time, brought about the gospel promises. And that's what I want you to see in Ephesians 2.19. Now therefore you, Ephesians, this was one of the Gentile cities, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints, members of the house of God. You've come into the tents of Shem. And Galatians, or sorry, Ephesians 3, 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Beloved, these blessings and cursings are what we see unfolding in the rest of scripture. That's why the Canaanites are emphasized because Israel's about to go into the land when Moses is first writing this down and the Jews need to understand why they're cursed. And God shows them in this text because of what they did, because of the Canaanites fulfilling and filling up the sin of their father, as it were. But someday, many, many years, right, the Gentiles would receive the gospel. And that promise is in this text. This text, beloved, is why you and I are now in the house of God. We are dwelling in the tents of Shem. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gracious way in which Japheth and Shem covered the shame of their father. Help us to do that in this church. Help us to not publish or try to expose or try to humiliate people in their sins. Help us to do the exact opposite. That we would want to cover, that we would want to protect, that we would want to preserve our reputations. We know we're sinners. We know we all sin. But Father God, unless we do some injustice to some other person or something that is a crime, we should be covering our sins. We should be protecting. We should be bearing with. Yes, we should be loving one another. Help us to do that, Lord. We thank you that you brought us into the tents of Shem. We thank you, Lord God, that you made a covenant with Shem, that you are the God of Shem. And indeed, you are the God of all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever their father was. And you will also judge all those who don't, whoever their father was. So help us not to presume upon anything, presume upon the covenant, but to subjectively Make it our own by believing, by repenting, and by living out that faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.